Slow Burn Media and Evergreen Podcast presents Who Killed, a podcast that provides a voice for the voiceless. We get a call out there that, that there's a credit card uh, in your husband's name and your husband is missing. Tell me what the story is. Because um, apparently you've been using the credit card for no problem, right? I always have. My husband is missing and he um, is not here generating income. We both ran, he ran the business and I helped him. So for seven years, you have this account, you um, It know, has his name on it. His name on it. And it says J, it says J period, M period, Orban. Okay. And the debit card. And I just used the debit card. And, for seven years? And, mm-hmm. Okay. Am I getting myself in big trouble saying that I... I don't, I don't see it. Um, if you got it two people's names, I have no, one with my daughter's name on it. Name. No, no, it, it says J period M, so that means... No, no, J Michael Orban. Oh, oh, okay. It was his account. I thought it was like J slash no, M. No, no, it was his account that he had been using. And he knew about it, of course. Yeah. And he was put, putting the money in it. Yeah, Okay. You've used this in the past, this credit card, because I saw the uh, circuit city said you bought stuff with no problem. Why they are saying they've closed Jay's accounts? Mm-hmm. You know everything's in Jay's name because mm-hmm. nothing can be in my name. Because if anything's in my name, the IRS problem. It's going to attach. So we just, I put myself at risk, mm-hmm. you know, of not being able to accumulate, um, you know, uh, community property, uh, accumulated status or rights or whatever. And mm-hmm. I didn't care because I knew Jay would never, you know, do anything against me or anything. But I guess it says it showed up that he's deceased. Um, you know, Detective Barnes has been working on this missing persons thing, and I'm really upset with him because um, he brought us in to tell us um, that he thinks that they found my husband. I'm sorry, so he's my husband. And they told his parents that they're insurance him. The parents are in their 70s and just completely distraught and completely, I mean, they're, they're older physically than their age, and they're not well, and again, they just do hell and they're distraught. And he told them that he just make sure you get some before the DNA, before the test. And I think that's just very irresponsible. Because his mother's just gonna die. What do you think? I don't know. Mm-hmm. Don't know. At first, I thought he'd just come walking through the door any minute. I don't know. I know I have to tell my son that. When he says, did, did Daddy forget us? Yeah, he had that sad. His father forgot about us. I'm not supposed to be talking about this matter. But, um, I had a time when he and I am sure that something terrible would happen. I don't know what Daddy might have had accidents, or some bad kind when he robbed him, or something bad when he must have happened. If he would not, uh, would not, not call me. Whatever yeah, I have to face for the mistake of using that card, I would happily, I will face it. Well, you know what? The, the card, know, is, if I could the just card is, is the part about J2. I mean, do you know anywhere we can start? Do you have any idea where we can start finding it? Mm-hmm. What, what, I want him back. What makes you so more than anyone in this world? Mm-hmm. I'm just afraid of something we say being misconstrued or taken out of context or read in a way that it might not be fact. I mean, I have been told, well, you you bought this, so you must you bought this. I mean, you must think that the, you must have. So that meant that you thought the jig wasn't coming back. No, that's not what it meant. 
I bought it. That's what it meant. Mm -hmm. I bought it. That's all. When was the last time you saw a joke? This is the thing that I really am terrified of sitting here and answering questions. I want to answer any question that you want answered. I will tell you the truth. I will tell, as, as best as I know it, I will tell you anything you want to know. But I have a little boy out there that may have lost his father. And I'm terrified of him losing his mother. And I don't want to say anything that may be taken out of context. Or, okay. Or, and, and I would, I would, is, I may resume this conversation during the day when we come to school with the attorney present just to help me, just so, just not to stop me. I will talk to you, but just to help make sure that I don't make an error. In, okay, and I don't mean, this? and I don't mean cover my behind and hide a lie. I don't mean protect okay. anyone else. I don't mean that at all. I just mean I have to, given what I have at stake, what well, my life. You know, if I'm blamed for this, I have a little boy out there that needs me. He needs his father too. Hello and welcome to episode 211 of Who Killed. I'm your host, Bill Huffman, and this is a Slow Burn Media, Evergreen Podcast, and Killer Podcast production. On this week's episode, we are going to talk with author Carrie Drobin about an interesting case that she is involved with as a criminal defense attorney, and that is the case of Marjorie Orban, who is a showgirl who was arrested for the murder of her husband in 2004. Now she's been in jail for 18 years and Carrie is fighting for her freedom. So join me for this week's episode of Who Killed? Hello and welcome to a very special episode of Who Killed? I am your host, Bill Huffman, and this week's guest is a author as well as a criminal defense attorney, and her name is Carrie Drobin, and she is here to discuss a couple different topics. And welcome to the show, Carrie. Thank you. Thanks for having me. It is a pleasure. I am so glad that we were able to make this happen. And you are uh, kind of a jack of all trades. You've uh, you've worked in the, the prosecutor's office. You're a criminal defense attorney. You're an author. I mean, wow. Where do you find the time? Yeah, I know. People ask me that all the time. It's not <laughs> like the Energizer Bunny. Um, yeah, well, you know, I, I started, I mean, I obviously do them in uh, compartmentalization you know it's not all the time but i started my um my law career as a prosecutor and that's where i kind of got my training I call it like boot camp where you you do you know x number of jury trials a year and you get your, your feet wet and i i really had the fortunate experience of being able to do some pretty um, complicated cases right off the bat and then eventually switched over to the dark side as it as it's called um because, you know, I, I really was missing that um, ability to have, you know, discretion and be able to talk to clients and really get into more of the meat of what I'm interested in, which is criminal pathology. And so um, I didn't really get a lot of that as a prosecutor because you're really sort of bound by policies and you're, you don't have a lot of discretion. You kind of have to take cases to trial and you don't really... Um, interact at all with clients. You can interact with victims, but it's, it's a really different sort of scene. And so what I loved about doing defense work is the ability to tell a story and the ability to um, really, um, you know, change the narrative. You know, you have a set of, sat of facts. Everybody's working with the same set of facts, but 
as a defense lawyer, you have one theory of the case. So we're deconstructing the case and the prosecution is constructing the case. So it's kind of an interesting perspective to have both sides of that. And that has been invaluable as an attorney and an author. That's a very interesting uh, perspective because I didn't really, I never put that together as far as when you're on the prosecutor's side where you have minimal interaction with the person that you're actually prosecuting because of lawyers and, you know, all that stuff. So it's super interesting that, how long were you in the prosecutor's office? Uh, five years. Yeah. Okay. Oh, wow. Yeah. Yeah, it's very impersonal. Um, that's part of what I didn't like about it. It's an impersonal sort of, you know, just the facts, you know. And so you don't really get to really um, see the person that you're prosecuting as a person. You know, I mean, you see them as this this entity that has committed, you know, allegedly committed this heinous crime and... Um, and that's sort of what you're, you're given and that's your role, which, you know, is a, is a commendable position to be in as well, but it wasn't something that really interested me because I, I really think that, you know, villains are people too and they're three dimensional. Um, and so that to me is much more fascinating. Well, that, yeah, that is very interesting. And, and I can imagine that that personal side, uh, would be a drive to get into the defense side of things I mean it's just you do get to see a lot more and you probably do get a lot more uh, experience in dealing with like you said criminal pathology and uh, you know the psychology of these individuals and uh, the, just like you said deconstructing the case opposed to constructing the case it's just that's so much I can see how that would be so much more interesting but again like you said it's your boot camp and you've learned a lot so it's an invaluable lesson and it's pretty common for people to do that, right? To go from the prosecutor's yeah. office to, to the defense yeah, I side. Think it is. I mean, I, I think it's actually really valuable for people to do that. I mean, cause you get to see um, many perspectives and it helps you, I think, be a better lawyer. Um, you know, because every, it's, it's a tough job on both ends really. And I think that, um, you know, it just, it, it takes so much, energy so much. Uh, I think on the defense side, it takes, uh, I call it, I call it kind of steel, you know, I mean, you, you're, I think you're both, you both have the same job in the sense that you are upholding the constitution. You know, you're making mm -hmm. sure that the person on trial is getting a fair trial and that's really the objective of both sides. So it's not really like from a defense perspective, it's not really to get them off or to you know, even to win the case necessarily, it's to make sure that everybody's following the same rules and, you know, people are getting a fair shake at it. And I think that's really the foundation and the heart and soul of our justice system. And so that's what is attractive to me about being a lawyer. But interestingly enough, I had a, just by sheer luck, when I became a defense lawyer, my very first case right out of the gate was a death penalty case. So I wound up like, welcome to the, welcome to the club. Right. And, yeah, geez. Like, uh, yeah. And that's sort of like the pinnacle of defense work in a lot of respects. I mean, you go from, I mean, death penalty work is so fascinating and it ties in so well to the kind of books I write, the cases that I litigate. I mean, it's, it's really the heart and soul of it all because you're, you're seeing the client as this three dimensional person. You get to, delve into all kinds of mitigation, which, you know, usually involves some kind of mental health 
Um, there's all kinds of pathology involved in it. And so, you know, my whole fascination from the get-go has been, why do people do the things they do? You know, what makes them tick? So sometimes it's a who done it, you know, like who killed so and so, and then you're coming up with what you know we term in, in the law as a third party defense. You know, somebody else did it, right? It wasn't my guy. Somebody else did it, and so you know, so that's really right. fascinating and intriguing because you're doing investigation to try to find out, you know, who did it, and sometimes you don't even have enough information, but the whole objective is to at least shed some reasonable doubt, and so you know, so that's. Part of the intrigue and also part of the challenge, um, and it's really the same sort of process in in writing true crime. You know, it's I mean, we know who did it, but it's finding the pathology and kind of uh, unearthing that and figuring out how you're going to tell the story. You know, um, so so that's part of the part of the fun. That's that's very interesting uh, perspective on uh, creating the story and then finding the people that were involved and then you know, making sure that, you know, you create that reasonable, reasonable doubt, because we all know how important that is. And um, with the case that we were going to discuss today, I mean, that's um, this uh, case, Marjorie Orban, and I hope I uh, said that correctly. uh, But this is a very interesting and intriguing case. Can you tell us a little bit of background about this case? And just a disclaimer, you are representing her as well so we'll just put that out right. on the table but Perspective. Pl- pl- yeah please let me know i mean this is an interesting and intriguing case and it goes back it's a case from 2009 and i'll let you go from there yeah so um marjorie orban is a a fascinating character um i you know in most of my career i've really only represented uh male murderers and so when Marjorie Orban um, came onto my uh, my roster, I, you know, I was fascinated for a number of reasons because I I really do believe that she is innocent of the murder. I think that, um, and just for people that don't know the case, she was a um, a glamorous, uh, beautiful Las Vegas showgirl who was married to the victim Jay Orban. And they had sort of a platonic, um, very, uh, I guess you would call it, um, a good relationship. But the the relationship was that she would marry Jay Orban because she really wanted a child. So it wasn't for his money. It wasn't for some other nefarious reason. Her real goal in entering into this relationship was because she wanted a child. And she was having difficulty conceiving, and Jay was going to help her, and he was going to pay for fertility treatments. And, you know, fast forward, she did have a son with him. So that was really sort of the the heart and soul of what this relationship was about. And the interesting thing about Marjorie is I think because she's so beautiful, because she was so glamorous and involved in the Las Vegas show world, she's gotten a really bad rap for just being that person. And I think that's a really interesting perspective for a woman and from a a woman defending her as well, because there are a lot of things that are attributed to her that that are just not true. Um, You know, for example, she was uh, one of the the myths of the case is that she murdered him for the life insurance policy. 
um, she wasn't even married to Jay at the time of his murder. So she would not have benefited from any type of life insurance policy from him. Now, what she does admit to is she did a lot of stupid things. And one of the stupid things that she did was she had an affair. <laughs> and she had an affair with a man that she met at the gym named Larry Weisberg. They had a, a three-month tryst, if you will. And, you know, and this is obviously the biggest mistake of her life. And I think uh, a lot of women could relate to her with respect to that because she fell for this man who, by all accounts, really is, is very narcissistic and very controlling. And, you know, and all of those things are, are well documented throughout the case. But what happens to Marjorie is she winds up moving a little too quickly in this relationship. And Larry Weisberg you know, starts to move in to the house that she shares with Jay and with her son. And her son is eight years old at the time. And Larry sort of convinces her that there's this fantasy, he creates a kind of fantasy where he says, we can really be a family together, right? And so um, Jay Orban, whom she continues to have a, a good platonic relationship with, is a salesman. And he travels a lot. And he travels to, you know, different states selling various um, artifacts. And so the weekend that this happens, Jay is out on a business trip. Nobody's expecting him to, to come home. And so Larry Weisberg is home with Marjorie on the night of this murder. And so is her son. And so, you know, as the story goes, there are lots of different theories. This was a case of circumstantial evidence. Um, you know, it's a 71-day, 10-month trial. And um, the, the horrible thing about this case, the thing that everybody remembers about it, is the way that Jay died, or the way that he was found, I should say. So the way that he's found is, in, is just his torso is found. He's uh, missing his head, he's missing his arms, he's missing his legs. His torso is stuffed into a rubber-made tub, and it's left in the desert, and it's found by a, um, you know, just a random person out in the desert happens to come across this torso. Terrible, <laughs> terrible discovery. Terrible Not discovery. Not what you're looking for. Yeah, horrific discovery. But it becomes a very interesting fact in the case because. Marjorie Orban is this petite, you know, five foot woman, maybe 125 pounds wet. And Larry Weisberg is six foot plus. And he's a bodybuilder and he's, uh, you know, steroid addicted. He's known for being a rager. I mean, you know, all you have to do is look at the two of them and ask yourself, is it possible, is it even possible that Marjorie could have done this, number one, on her own, number two, even with help? Because to cut up a body, I mean, it's not easy to cut up a body. Not that, you know, <laughs> I mean, I've researched this. It's not easy to cut up a body. And what, what, has, what was discovered very early on in the case um, is that Larry Weisberg refused to talk to the police unless he was granted immunity. And so he was granted immunity very early on in exchange for his testimony at trial. Big, big mistake. 
because Larry Weisberg, everything points. Seriously. <laughs> yeah. Crazy. I mean, there's so many uh, things that went wrong in this case, you know, unfortunately to Marjorie's detriment because she is now serving life in prison for this murder and just her. Nobody was tried with her. You know, there was a the defense at the time. And I should mention, I, I represent her on post-conviction. So I, I was not her trial lawyer. I was not her appellate lawyer. So I'm coming in way after the fact to try to find out if there's any way I can investigate and develop new evidence to reopen her case, um, to get somebody to look at her, because it just seems like such a travesty that has happened. And, and you know, it's not, the disclaimer I would make is, she's not innocent, but she did not commit this murder, you know? And so that's really the heart and soul of defense work is, you know, they may not be angels, but they didn't do this, you know, they didn't do this thing. So she should not be serving life in prison for this crime. So I do have a question. So she is um, convicted in with the murder takes place in 2009 or 2008. It takes place in 2004. Oh, 2004. Yes. Okay. okay. And it's so that she doesn't go on trial until 2009. So yes. when is she on? Oh gosh. Okay. Yeah, so she's wow, been that's a big years. Yeah, she was. Oh wow, that is that is um just doesn't seem right. Is it common to offer immunity that quickly? I mean, you worked in the prosecutor's office for five years. Is that something that you ever came yeah. across? <laughs> no, yeah, as a matter of fact, it's, it's it was really striking in this case that that happened because really all of the evidence points to Larry. I mean, he had, I mean, there's just like a laundry list of it. You know, he had a, and I'll read some of it. <laughs> I mean, this is yeah, what, please. this is what they found, right? So Larry admits that he had saws, hammers, bins, and tape. And he says, you know, he so was physically, I could do this, but morally I couldn't, right? So he's already admitting this stuff, but he knows he's not going to be tried for it. Um, he insists on seeing a copy of Marjorie's divorce papers. Why? You know, maybe to see if there's any type of policy in there. Um, he only speaks to Detective Barnes if Detective Barnes will grant him immunity. And, and you know, and then he sings like a parrot. Um, he has plastic sheeting in the back of his Tahoe, the plastic sheeting that's actually found on the tub. He has a shed in the back of his home in a standalone garage. He kept plastic, duct tape, razor blades, extension cords. He had a dull knife, a throwing knife, a combat style knife. He owned- Sounds a like jigsaw. Dexter. Right. He's like Dexter. And P.S. The shed was demolished before trial. He demolished the shed with all the evidence in it. So we can't, you know, we can't even go and find it. Wait, um, wait, wait. He just knocked the whole thing down with all that stuff in it? Thing down, yes. What? Yes. <laughs> red flags, red flags galore, guys. I mean, don't drop the ball. It's insane. And he, he says he was a hunter. He went elk hunting. He watched an animal get gutted. He actually had a hunting cabin. You know, I mean, the, the big thing about this case, not to get completely morbid, but where happened to the head? What happened to the head? What happened to the hands? What happened to the feet? I mean, these are all <laughs> identifying markers, right? So if he has a hunting lodge yeah. somewhere, 
where's the head? I mean, did, did it get dissolved in acid? I mean, who knows, right? It was just all ways to keep the identity gone. He owned a futon in his house. The rubber tub was covered with a mattress futon that was similar to Larry's. I mean, this is like, this all, it was an extensive list that the prosecution knew, defense knew. Um, he has a son-in-law who was a hunter who had reciprocating saws. Larry was found with reciprocating saws. Um, yep, which is like, for people who don't know, it's like a sawzall, which is basically just a, a saw that's going to be perfect for exactly what dismembering yeah. a body, that's Cutting what the tool you would need. He testified, Larry testified, that he could squat 225 pounds, you know, which, I mean, and I should mention, I don't think I mentioned this before, but Jay Irvin was 300 pounds when he died. So, okay. <laughs> You know, again, how does Marjorie, this petite, 125-pound woman, lift the guy, put him in the tub, cut him up, you know, never mind how, you know, whether or not this, she actually participated in a murder, how does she get him in a tub, right? It's just, it's impossible. So yeah, there's all these that, you know, just point that scream to Larry, you know, and he has a son-in-law and a daughter who owned a, a Jeep Cherokee that had tire tracks that were identical to the tire tracks that were left at the scene of the tub. So, and I should mention in, in the case that I had was I was working on post-conviction, we did DNA. I mean, not all of the DNA was tested and in the DNA that we had tested, it came back with DNA unidentified to somebody other than Marjorie, who was also a woman. And so the theory that I've tried to advance is that not only did Larry Weisberg do this crime, but he also solicited the help of a man and a woman. So three people did this crime. The other fascinating thing about this is, you know, not only did Larry try to move in to Marjorie's house um, while they were dating, but he also owned a garage door opener. And so, um, to their home, know, to their house, right? Yeah. To their house. So, you know, the, one of the theories is that, you know, Jay Orban came home unexpectedly because his son was sick, Kim comes home from his business trip unexpectedly and confronts Larry who happens to be there. And Larry wrestles him, shoots him with a gun. And now they've got a problem because now they've got a body in the garage. What do they do about it? Right. So, I mean, there's all kinds of theories out there because it was a circumstantial evidence case, but the verdict in this just doesn't make any sense. And she's, you know, she's been in prison now for 18 years for a crime that there's no way she could have done on her own. You know, there's just, there's just a host of things that went wrong in her trial. And so my job on post-conviction is to try to find that, that new evidence that would open up her case. Because I, I yeah. believe that somebody out there knows the truth. They know what happened. And for whatever reason, they're not coming forward. And can I ask, I mean, I assume Larry's still alive? He is still alive, yes. Okay. Apparently still weightlifting. <laughs> All right, how old is Larry now? He's probably mm, early seventies. 
Oh, wow. Yeah. Okay. You know, the thing, the research that I was looking at and some of the articles that I was looking at, it's like they made it seem like it was an open and shut case. Like there wasn't much about it being, you know, a possibility that she wasn't involved. And I know that like, you know, news stories, of course, they want to dramatize things and make them more, you know, than they are. But in Marjorie's case, you know, the, the weird things that she did after he died, you know, like spending money on certain things and, you know, acknowledge she acknowledged that, you know, I was, and I, I, you know, you lose a family member, you know, a husband, a a lover, you know, it is, um, ex-husband even, you know, like you're going to be traumatized. So I don't really put too much stock in that, but it would be a, you know, I can see the investigators kind of being like, well, this is weird. But yeah, you know, no, you're right. I mean, and, and I think, I mean, she would be the first to say she did a lot of stupid things, you know, and she's not innocent of, of being a, a participant in some fashion in this case. But as far as murdering Jay Orban, I, not a chance. I, I don't, I don't see it. I don't think there's even a possibility of that. But what I do believe and what I think the narrative would support is you have a controlling lover who has committed a crime, has a, a body that he now needs to dispose of and threatens Marjorie, threatens to implicate her, threatens to take away her child, you know, whatever story he creates to get her to comply, to get her to do the things that she did in this case. And that's a narrative that really has not ever been presented, you know, and it's the narrative of, um, you know, having a, a narcissistic controlling lover suddenly threatening and implicating you in his dirty deeds. And then when he gets immunity and gets off, I mean, what a great setup, you know, what a great setup for a, a person who is a narcissist and controlling. I mean, sure. Blame it on the, <laughs> you know, blame it on Marjorie. Right. I mean, so and then get away with it. Just talk about empowering yeah. them. Yeah, it's just Here's adding a question. layer of, of abuse, you know, onto this already toxic and abusive relationship. So so it's it is really interesting to look at it from that perspective, which I don't think anybody really does because they don't you know, again, I mean the prosecution, you know, you've got this it's it's hard to overcome the horror of the crime itself. And that's really what is difficult even for a jury, right? I mean, you go in front of a jury and you say, you're not allowed to um, be influenced by your passions, right? Well, it's really hard when you've got a torso. And so I think in situations like that, I think it is really important from a prosecutor's, from a prosecution perspective to, to catch the killer, right? To get the killer, to make sure someone pays for this. And um, and to make sure that the child, who at the time was eight years old, is not orphaned, right? That justice is served, that his father's killer comes to town. So I, I think a lot of that goes into the prosecution's case, you know, and, and it goes into the police investigation where, you know, there have been allegations of a rush to judgment. You know, I mean, why give this guy immunity? You haven't even investigated the case. You don't even know enough about it to give him immunity, and yet it happened. So there's all kinds of, of missteps, I think, in Marjorie's case. 
And I would also argue that, you know, because of who she is, she also was sort of condemned from the beginning, you know? I mean, because she's this this beautiful showgirl, successful, you know, I mean, there have been uh, shows that have depicted her as sort of a black widow, you know, um, going after and using her yeah, beauty. Yeah, the one I can... Lure men in, right? Yes. I mean, that's like... Mm-hmm. I mean, you can flip that narrative around too and say that, you know, a, a beautiful woman like that can also have a lot of insecurities. You know, they can also be somebody who is is duped by men, who is flattered by men, particularly men like Larry Weisberg. So that's how you take the same set of facts and, and change that theory of the case. And so I think in my um, conversations with Marjorie and my dealings with her, that's the woman that I see. That's the woman that I've come to know, which is somebody who really, I think, was was condemned for her beautiful outer layer, right, without anybody really saying, hey, let's take a closer look at what really happened here. Um, and let's not, let's not condemn her for all of the acts. You know, let's, let's look at what she actually did, which is a cover-up, which is, you know, accessory after the fact, perhaps. Um, but it's not murder. Yes. And I agree with you on that. I mean, it's definitely from the way that the articles portray this case is they don't know exactly when this happened. You know, it's a certain time, you know, it's between a certain time frame. Um, I, I mean, I can totally see the scenario play out the exactly how you've laid it out and yeah, being an accessory, you know, that doesn't doesn't and should not entail a life sentence, especially when you're in a circumstance where you're basically under his control. And so what are you going to do when the guy has a gun and just killed your ex-husband and is now saying, well, we need to get rid of the body? Right. What are you going to do? I mean, you're not really going to fight him. I mean, how big is Larry? You know, the guy benched 225. I mean... Or not bench, you can squat 225. I don't want to give him too much credit because, you know, that's a whole nother thing. But, uh, yeah, I mean, did he have any connection? That was a question I wanted to ask. Did he have any connection to the local police at all? I mean, that seems well, like a kind of like a sweetheart deal. It does seem like a sweetheart deal. Um, the, I mean, there, it's not really a connection. In fact, it's even weirder than that because he, uh, he applied to be a police officer. And, and flunked, you know, so he was a rejected wannabe police officer, which makes it even worse that he got this sweetheart deal, you know, I mean, it's just, the whole thing is very, uh, uh, yeah, there, it's just, it's not good around this because it really does sort of um, spotlight the police as well saying, you know, what kind of investigation did you do? You know, I mean, at one point the SWAT team shows up to Marjorie's house and Larry's there and um, they asked him. Yeah, right. I read that. And so, I mean, he's literally like attacked by the cops because he's so aggressive and so in their face. And so, you know, I mean, that kind of rage and that unwillingness to take a polygraph and all of that, I mean, just speaks volumes to, I mean, what are you hiding? You know, (laughs) what are you hiding? So, um, so yeah, I mean, I think there's, 
there's just a lot that was not unpacked in this case. There was a rush to judgment in this case, I believe, and the real culprit was protected for reasons unknown, you know? And I, I mean, I still cannot get to the bottom of that immunity agreement. And, I, and I'm sure. the conviction lawyer, you know, trying to figure out what happened. <laughs> you know, and then, and then to boot, you know, Detective Barnes, and, and he says this in his um, Dateline interview, but he didn't even testify in her case. So here's the lead detective who takes the fifth in Marjorie Orban's case and cannot even testify. So, I mean, the whole thing is insane because he's being investigated for something else, something related to something completely different. But he doesn't. So you've got this like crazy um, set of circumstances that really, I mean, in my opinion, just railroaded her ability to have any type of fair trial. And, and I'm a pretty, you know, I mean, like I said, my background comes from prosecution and then defense. So I am not a bleeding heart. I am not somebody that just will jump on the bandwagon of, of any, you know, client I have. I really do look at a case and look at the facts and, and go through the investigation and try to really dig deep into what happened here. So for me to say that and to have all of this sort of chatter around me that that is condemning her, I think really kind of speaks volumes to what went wrong in this case. And the other thing that I think is pretty um, telling is that Marjorie herself is owns up to her part in this. You know, she owns up to the fact that she made stupid mistakes. She did things that, you know, were by all accounts crimes, but they weren't this murder. And so I think that in and of itself also, you know, gives her some credibility and some, some standing, you know, in this yes. fight. So being the post-conviction lawyer and trying to, you know, undo and deconstruct this case, what is it that you need to find or d discover or uncover that will move the case towards some resolve, you know, where she can be let out of prison and somebody can actually be held accountable for this crime? Well, it's a, it's a difficult road, but it's newly discovered evidence. And in this case, um, you know, I, I'm looking for, I'm looking for the smoking gun that will implicate Larry. And because Larry has immunity, I need to find the players that helped him. I need to find somebody who will talk. Uh, I've already, you know, tested various items that I can test that weren't tested you know, for DNA previously. Came up with this unknown female DNA that does not match Marjorie. So whose is it? Whose does it match? There's somebody out there that knows the truth, that knows what happened, that has been silenced, and maybe by Larry. I mean, we've seen what he was capable of with Marjorie. Maybe he did that with relatives of his. I mean, you know, he's even seen by his daughter dumping large garbage bags in a dumpster on the night of this murder. So, I mean, <laughs> you know, were they parts? I mean, what, what does his daughter know? You know, I mean, these are the kinds of things that, as a post-conviction lawyer, I go and I investigate. And so I interview people. I try to, you know, re-interview people, ask them new questions. Maybe with passage of time, people are more willing to talk. You know, it's a, it's just, it's a really, really difficult um, hurdle to overcome. 
because you have to find something in the case that was not previously presented and that could not have been previously discovered. So it's a new wrinkle to it, a new angle. Yeah. It has to be new evidence to yeah. push that ball down the field. That's right. that's a, uh, definitely a challenge. Um, how often do you speak with your client? Um, you know, I try to communicate with her at least, um, at least to just say, you know, I'm working on stuff, um, about once a month, um, you know, and, and visitations are fewer, but I definitely, I try to keep the hope alive because it's really easy to lose hope when you're in prison and so many years have passed and there've been so many, um, you know, trips down the, the rabbit hole. And, and nothing materializes, so it's easy to lose hope. And I think that, you know, the important thing for Marjorie is, you know, it, it can come at any time. It's just, it's never going to be swift. And I think that's the, that's the rub of it, you know, investigating, trying to prove a negative or investigating something where you don't even have a lead is really, really tough. Yeah, I, I can imagine. And so if... Let's say, you know, you find this on you know, this this new evidence, and you uncover some, you know, maybe some DNA profiles that maybe match up. You know, the fact that Larry has immunity does that, you know, again, does, that's the reason it has to be newly discovered evidence. Right, it has to be newly discovered evidence, and I'm hoping that the, um, you know, if somebody else comes forward and points the finger at him or there's something, you know, or they, they find, you know, the murder weapon or, you know, whatever it is, if there's like, I mean, now we don't even have a shed because it was demolished, but I mean, there has to be something that's going to point back to him. So it's not just his testimony or his thing, you know, it's a, it's real. I mean, it made it so tough for even the defense during trial, you know, to, to implicate him because of his immunity. I mean, it's just it, it's crazy. I've never, I've never had a case where that's happened, where somebody says, you know, here's the lead guy, but we don't need him. We're going to implicate, you know, the secondary player. It sounds like a plot of a TV show that is impractical. You know, you know, like they're just the, whatever the crime of the week. You know, a Law and Order episode. Like that doesn't even seem like they would even do Not something like that. <laughs> yeah, uh, I, I don't even understand it. I can't even offer an explanation for it. it makes no sense. That has got to be the most frustrating thing ever. So do you think it would be his daughter that would mo most likely be the one that would, I don't know, eventually turn on him? Because, well, you know, yeah, I mean, you mentioned I the son-in-law. Because, I mean, if there's anybody that needs a, uh, an immunity deal, <laughs> right, you know what I'm exactly. saying? Like... <laughs> you know, who's the least responsible? I, you know, if this is the daughter-in-law or the daughter and the son-in-law, if they're involved and they say, well, we're going to, we would like immunity because we know the walls are closing in and yada, yada, yada. I mean, I think, I mean, is that what you hope is the eventual outcome where they just, one of them will just say, you know, this is it. I would hope that somebody has a conscience after so many years. I mean, I, I just find it impossible to believe that somebody has not talked to somebody, that there's not, you know, pillow talk or um, something that has happened in private. Because, you know, whether or not 
Larry can ever be prosecuted for this it is almost a secondary issue because if somebody comes forward and says, Larry did this and this is how I know this, then Marjorie is out. So, you know, that's my concern is what can I do to get Marjorie, you know, what can I do to get justice? Because it's, it's not just for her to be serving a natural life sentence. You know, I mean, she served 18 no. years or whatever, even if she was an accessory after the fact, she's done her time, you know, and that's the thing. It's like, let's, let's, let's actually make this a just prosecution. You know, I mean, yeah, it's a tall order, but <laughs> sure. It sure is. And, you know, you mentioned she's been in jail for 18 years. So that means that they focused in on her right away right after the crime. So why did it take them five years to go to trial? Well, I mean, it is a complicated case. So they're, they're doing their investigation gathering. So, I mean, she would be incarcerated without bond for that length of time while they investigate. And so, um, so that's not necessarily unusual, unfortunately, but you know, it definitely, yeah, it adds to, it adds to all the, the factors on that. I mean, if you're, if you're picked up on a death penalty case, because the state noticed, you know, I mean, you're, you're sitting incarcerated waiting for your day in court. You don't even get offered bail. No, you don't, you don't get a plea offer. Or you don't get anything. So it's a, that yeah. is so ridiculous. I mean, so like, I want to know, like, what was the time frame between the day that they found the body to the time that they put her in jail? Well, it was within a month. So she, uh, it began, yeah, it began as a missing persons case where, um, you know, okay. I mean, I, I, Makes sense. But I believe, yeah, right. So, I mean, Jay didn't come home and then people were trying to figure out what happened to him and why didn't he come home? And, you know, and Marjorie, I mean, what I believe happened is I think she's under the, the thumb of Larry so she's trying to play along and hoping that this becomes a missing person case and will go away. And that's how she's helping him to cover up this horrific crime. Um, but, you know, pretty soon they discover that Jay's vehicle that he was using is abandoned and then it's moved, you know, and then, uh, you know, and then they find the torso. And so it kind of goes from there. So it goes from missing persons to now it's a homicide. And now we need to find the person. And then, of course, Larry asked for immunity. And then it kind of goes from there. So it was very quick to pin her as... And I want to know what this... <laughs> this Larry this Larry character. I mean, anybody named Larry is a character. Just, uh, right. you know, yeah. that's just something about it. But uh, how quickly did he... You know, did they go and ask him? And he's just like, I'm not going to say anything unless I get immunity. I mean, is, was that his? Well, pretty much. It was very quick. I mean, it was, you know, he spoke to one detective before Detective Barnes. Well, actually, I think he spoke to a couple before Detective Barnes. And then finally, you know, he says to Detective Barnes, I'm not going to talk unless you grant me immunity. I won't tell you anything unless you grant me immunity. And so, you know, I think it really sort of played into this, um, you know, this desperate search for who did this horrific crime. So, you know, we'll grant you immunity. And then, you know, and then as the investigation moves along, they start to realize, hey, maybe, maybe Larry had a much larger role in this than we initially 
you know, realized, but you can't renege on that now. So, so that's my, that's my big question is if you're the prosecutor, you've given this guy immunity and then the case starts to look like, well, this individual seems to be more involved than what he's leading on. Cause clearly he's, you know, a bigger man that can actually move a body. I mean, I couldn't, I don't think I could move a 300 pound body like that's dead weight is dead weight and not, not a pun intended. Right. So can you reverse immunity? I think is your question, right? Can you reverse it? Well, I mean, while yeah. you're in the middle of the, I mean, I guess while you're a prosecutor and you, you just, yeah. Can you just be like, no, I'm sorry. We, we have to take that back. No, I mean, you can't, I mean, you've made a deal with this guy, so you can't, <laughs> You know, I mean, you. what you can do is you can let the other person out. If you start oh. to, this is where I think the state, like, really fell down. I think that, um, you know, once the investigation really starts to point to Larry, I, I think it, it, it behooved the state to drop, to drop the murder charge on Marjorie. You know, when it yes. becomes clear, they didn't do that. And so, you know, and they didn't even charge her as a, you know, they can't even charge him as a co-defendant. Or an accomplice, but I think really the the problem was is that they don't drop the charges on Marjorie, and that's where I think they went south. Wow, it seems to be a very complicated, um, narrow focused uh, investigation that really wasn't much of invest an investigation because it seems like Larry dictated the whole damn thing. And pardon my French, but you know it's uh, it's kind of crazy that uh, that somebody who was clearly involved. I mean, the guy wouldn't take a polygraph. He's at the house. I mean, he's having an right. affair. I mean, there. I don't even in twenty twenty two he'd be in jail, and yeah, I don't understand what happened. <gasps> I don't understand what happened either. It's completely mind boggling to me. I mean, the whole thing is my, that's why, I mean, that's why I've been on this case for so long because I, it just has so many twists and turns to it. Every time I, I dig into one area, something else comes up, you know, and I, I, but it all, all roads sort of lead to Larry, you know, I mean, he's the one that orchestrated this and, and, you know, you can imagine from a, from a narcissist perspective, this is great. You know, I mean, the whole case has, you know, he's immune from it. It doesn't matter. The right, you know, in his mind, the right person is, you know, taking the rap. I mean, it's it's just a brilliant sociopathic setup is what it is. I mean, that's what that's what it appears to be. And, you know, and and, and he's he's safe from it all. Yeah. I mean, I know we got to get going here because, you know, you've got a tight schedule, but um, I just got a couple more questions. And I guess that would revolve around Larry and and just like his past did it, was there anything in his past that would have dictated that he could have been violent or you know a murderer I mean I did you yeah <laughs> like the making of a murderer um, yeah well, I mean I, I think you know for him I mean I I think it was opportunity um you know if if it played out the way that I believe that it played out I think it was um it was it was opportunity, but it was also sort of moving in and wanting to take over, um, you know, this life that Marjorie had. You know, he he had he wanted to he wanted the ready-made family. I mean, there's certainly evidence that he was, you know, a rager, um, 
passive aggressive, you know, a hunter, um, was a handyman, <laughs> you know, had a lot of skill set with knives and guns and, you know, so, I mean, there's definitely that background in his past. There's also the strange sort of, you know, how did he flunk, you know, um, applying to different police departments and, you know, so like there's, there's something in his background that just really kind of screamed red flags, but, you know, mm -hmm. is he capable of murder? I mean, I don't know. I think, I think under the right circumstances, you know, somebody like that could certainly commit murder. And I, I think that's what happened in this case. I think that Jay Orban surprised them. And I think he grabbed Jay's gun because Jay traveled with a gun. And I think they had a tussle in the garage. And I think he shot Jay. And I think that's, you know, he needed to get rid of the body. I mean, but to buy it, to buy it diabolically say, hey, let's cut him up and put him in a tub. I, I don't think, I don't believe that Marjorie had any knowledge of that. And, um, and I think the fact that they have her on video shopping at Home Depot for a tub, I, I don't think that's evidence of anything because that's what her business, that's what Jay Orban's business was. They had a lot of tubs in their garage that contained a lot of his uh, artifacts that he sold. So there really isn't a, a link that way that she's out there. It, but even if there is, is she out there buying a tub at Larry's, you know, demand or require i mean she i don't i really do not believe she had any idea that her ex-husband was going to be chopped up and and stuffed into a tub i mean i just nothing that i have read or researched would ever point to that so i i think that you know somebody like larry would be capable of that and that diabolical particularly if he had a hunting lodge and a chainsaw and, you know, all the equipment that he could have and had seen an animal gutted before, had perhaps gutted one himself, because that's the other thing about the torso, sure. all the organs. <laughs> you know, I mean, right? I mean, that's like, wait, say, that's say, what wait, I'm... say that, say that again. Wait, say that again. Wait, what, what, what was this? Well, the torso, when it's found, all the organs are gone. It's disemboweled, right? So that is what a hunter does. That's exactly what a hunter does. That's why I'm shocked that this is such this. Right? This it's is shocking. It's shocking. Crazy. Can you, I mean, can you imagine? So Marjorie's basically my size. Can you imagine me, like my size, being able to lift a 300 no. pound the person? Answer is no. <laughs> Look it's, at me. I can't do. I couldn't do that. <laughs> Well, there you go. So, it's completely broken. I'm just, so. I don't even know if the two of us could do it. Right. I mean, 300 I pounds is. Yeah. See, those but, details man. are the that are just, they're mind boggling. Those details really, for me, sort of nail this case. I mean, you know, sure. hunting lodge, disemboweling a body, gutting them. Hmm. I mean, all that. Yeah, being a hunter and knowing where to cut the tendons and do the, do this and do that, and you know, it definitely is something that would be a, a red flag for me if I was the investigating team or part of the investigation. And uh, that's definitely something that uh, is very intriguing. And did they use that video of her in trial with the Home Depot video? Is that the one yes. you're talking about? Yes, they did. Yeah, they presented that. 
Yeah. So my question is <laughs> Home Depot in 20 in 2000 in 2004 though wouldn't they be able to like determine what she bought? Exactly. Yeah, I mean it, I it looked like I mean I mean I think it was just the tub. It was a black tub in the shopping cart is what the video showed. So But they weren't able to trace it back to the body. Uh, no, but they, they had a receipt that she went to Home Depot. I know that's what I mean. Like it's just a, a Rubbermaid tub, it's, you know, yeah. she had plenty of Rubbermaid tubs in her garage, you know, so. It doesn't make I, I sense. Mean, yeah, it doesn't make sense. It's a, there's a lot of, it's, it's really a crazy case. I really think that, you know, a lot of it, I mean, two, two things I think that, that really probably, you know, swayed the the jury or heard her was, you know, things that had actually nothing to do with the case it was her background, you know, um, Larry getting immunity. I mean, you know, she was condemned for being naive perhaps. And her lifestyle. You know. Let's just be honest. Yeah. I mean, it was, it was the, it was the fact that people saw her for what her, you know, her persona may have been and they applied that to this woman and it was unfairly applied because just because you've done certain things or you've done mean, you know, certain jobs to earn money doesn't mean that you're a murderer. It just doesn't. Right. If that was the case, there'd be, you know, millions of people locked up. It just doesn't, it doesn't, I mean, right. there are yeah, many more millions of people. <laughs> Yeah, I mean, they're judging, they're prejudging her, misjudging her for things. Um, you know, they may not approve of her lifestyle. They may not, they may not like the fact that she's beautiful and glamorous, and you know, seem to attract men, or and or was you know un, unfairly or unduly flattered, you know, by them, by the attention. I mean, all of those things. That, I mean, they may be, you know, from some people's perspective character flaws or, you know, reasons to, to condemn somebody, but it's, you know, had nothing to do with, with this case. And, um, you know, and I think unfortunately that legacy has, has followed her in a lot of this, you know, and that's just a shame. She's been a librarian, because... you know, <laughs> I, I mean, it might've been a different outcome, you know? Absolutely. They wouldn't have zeroed in on the pretty blonde and it's it's weird how uh this country works in that regard we just discount certain people and certain things and um i just feel yes. like this is a case where she got totally tossed to the side and uh yeah. you know not, a, not especially sympathetic so they just threw her out and you know locked her up for life like the, what's up with that i just don't it's, it's the old expression, just lack of. <laughs> right. Yeah. You're, you're, I mean, it's scary because, I mean, this was like literally three months of her life meeting Larry. I mean, what a fateful, crazy thing. And how many women, you know, wind up in very destructive, bad relationships. You know, you can almost see that sort of unfold, you know, where she then gets trapped because she doesn't want to harm her child. And, you know, he's threatening her that he's going to do something with her child. You know, it's a very bad situation to be in. All right. As we wrap it up here, is there anything that you would like our listeners to know that we haven't yet covered? Or is there a, uh, any way that they can 
lend support or, you know, how do they find you? Well, they can find me on my website. So it's carriedrobin.com. Um, if they're interested in, um, you know, the criminal pathology or other, um, you know, just other, my background, for example, I mean, I have a lot of books out there on Amazon uh, under Carrie Jorben. And um, I spent a lot of time. What was your latest book? My latest book was Aurora. It's the um, psychiatrist of the Colorado movie theater tells her story. This was the story of James Holmes who uh, went into a Colorado movie theater and shot up 12 people, wounded 72 others in what was considered then the worst mass shooting in U.S. history. And uh, sadly, that has been surpassed. Um, Multiple times. Like, right, 611 mass shootings in 2022 alone. So it is an epidemic. A hundred percent agree. Yeah. And I live in, Terrible. and I'm in Colorado now. And it's, I mean, the legacy. People walk around here and they wonder why, what is with the state? Why did, why are there so many mass shootings here? And nobody knows the I answer. I don't get it. I don't get it. I mean, Columbine, Aurora, there have been several King after Soup, that. The King Supers in Boulder. Um, that, that, I mean, all this stuff. I mean, it's, it's, it's nuts. It's nuts. I mean, my buddy was driving, we were going by a school going uh, uh rafting and he's like yeah there was a school shooting there and i was like what he's like yeah some yeah. crazy guy shot it's and, and just you know again not to i'm not going on a tangent but it's just yes i agree with you that this is a, it's definitely an epidemic that needs to be addressed and it's not being properly addressed i'll leave it at that it's crazy but yeah so but so yeah check out your website and uh, Carrie, thank you so much for taking time out of your day to join me. And again, uh, yes, thank you. Many thanks to author and criminal defense attorney Carrie Drobin for joining this week's episode of Who Killed? It was a pleasure to discuss the case that she is currently working on. And again, you can check out all her stuff at CarrieDrobin.com. And as far as you guys go, thank you so much for tuning in this week. And I will have a new episode every Friday starting in 2023. And again, this is a labor of love. And I wouldn't be here without you guys. So if you are interested in knowing what's coming down the pike, please follow me on Twitter at BillHuffman3. I know it's currently a cesspool. Thanks a lot, Elon. And... Uh, other than that, you guys can also support the show via Venmo with my username at bill-huffman-3. And other than that, as always, stay healthy and most importantly, be safe. Hi, this is Amy and Vanessa from She Goes by Jane, where we shine light on the stories of missing and unidentified women. On November 7th, we're sharing Nahida's story for the first time in a podcast. And this is a story that I thought I knew, but after reading police reports, it became more complicated than I thought. When investigators are called to Nahida Khatib's house, everything looks fine. Her purse is on the kitchen table, her cup of coffee is on the counter, and her two-year-old niece is in her playpen. The only thing amiss? Nahida is missing. Every week, we feature a poem written in honor of the person we're talking about. This week, we're joined by one of our favorite actresses, 
You might know her from Sister Act or King of the Hill or The Descendants. But if you're like us, you'll know her from Hocus Pocus. She's the much-beloved Kathy Najimy. Join us November 7th to hear Nahida's story. 3 a.m., the comedy horror podcast that holds weekly gatherings around the campfire. Let me tell you what you're going to get. You're going to hear stories about demonic possessions, prison stabbings, skinwalkers, glitches in the Matrix, cult leaders, missing 411, night marchers, Operation Paperclip, Mesopotamian devil worship, and so many monsters it'll give Kanye West a runaway for his money. Pop and meme culture also aren't off topic. A camp where laughs and scares are constantly competing for first place. We're just a group of friends trying to bust each other's balls, find the best stories, and expand the circle in the process. 3AM, the comedy horror podcast, not for the faint or fragile of heart. Let's go.